Hey everybody, welcome back to Pocket Counselor. It's good to have you. This is your host, Mike Robb. So, this week we have a lot of uh, really cool, new, exciting topics. And I hope that all of you are staying well amidst the coronavirus pandemic. And I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to our podcast. I was looking over the statistics this week, and we have listeners all around the world. And it's pretty impressive to see how far and wide they're coming from to listen. We actually are reaching people as far out as New Zealand and a lot in Europe, as well as South America. And of course, a little bit in Africa and Asia as well. And so we are getting out there and very happy to have all of you from all over the world right here listening to Pocket Counselor coming to you live in a very pre-recorded fashion uh, wherever you find your great podcasts. So today I've got a couple of topics I want to talk to you about. First is going to be a new uh, medication for schizophrenia that uh, we'll talk about and a little overview of schizophrenia if you're unaware of it. Um, and then I also want to talk to you a little bit about opiate use disorder with the corona pandemic. I think that we've um, not forgotten about, I wouldn't say that, but attention is turned away from the opiate pandemic as well. And finally, a little bit about the coronavirus pandemic and what to do when someone you live with or are in a relationship with sees the pandemic a little bit differently than you do. We'll talk more about that and a couple other topics coming up here on Pocket Counselor today. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Pocket Counselor. I'm your host, Mike Robb. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is one of the biggest and most misunderstood mental illnesses that I've come across. Uh, movies, uh, news, modern uh, depictions everywhere really don't do it justice. They don't characterize it correctly. I don't know, and you're welcome to challenge me on this, but I'm not entirely sure if there is a more stigmatized mental illness. Of course, with all the mental illnesses, there comes a great deal of stigma, but especially with schizophrenia, there is a huge stigma. And pretty much anything you see in movies, music, TV, news, books about schizophrenia is pretty much wrong. Um, it's 
and not a disease that makes you into the uh, axe-wielding murderer you see on every TV show or movie. Uh, it doesn't mean you have multiple personalities. There's a lot of really wrong uh, information out there about this. So I'd like to dispel a few of these things with you today, give you a little overview. But I also want to talk to you about this new medication that's coming out and appears to be very promising. So a brief overview of schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is characterized by having one of or several in fact, of three main categories of symptoms. There are positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and then cognitive symptoms. So the positive and negative symptoms do not mean they're good or bad. It means the addition of something or the subtraction of something from what would be um, an average or normally occurring state. So, for example, with the positive symptoms, you can have hallucinations, uh, you can have delusions, things of that nature. And the hallucinations can be any of the five senses, but most often uh, it's auditory in nature. Negative symptoms would be a lack of motivation, poor hygiene, uh, lack of communication skills, a lack of interest in things, uh, especially things that you used to enjoy, but it different than what you might see in a depression. And then cognitive symptoms are the person's trying to get thoughts out, but they're coming out scrambled or um, not coming out at all. It might be tangential in their thoughts things like that. And there is also what they call word salad, where the person is speaking and there's a lot of words coming out, but none of it makes sense. There's very little syntax or meaning behind the words. So that's a very brief overview of schizophrenia. I could do an entire episode on this. I am absolutely fascinated by the illness. And there's several theories out there about the illness and why it happens. But um, what I want to talk to you about today is there's actually a study going on right now, and you can find on Medscape, but Synovian Pharmaceuticals has brought about what they're calling a game changer for schizophrenia. And they presented it at the 2019 American Psychiatric Association meeting. And the drugs got some preliminary approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And what they're finding is it has a very durable benefit. And here's, here's the really cool part, is that it's very benign with respect to weight gain lipids, and what they call extrapyramidal side effects. So this is important for a couple reasons, because a lot of the medications that our clients are put on come with substantial weight gain, especially with schizophrenia. So 
the entire class of drugs called antipsychotics have a real risk of high cholesterol and also a risk of type 2 diabetes, primarily due to the weight gain, but due to some other issues too. So having a drug that is benign with weight gain is huge. The other thing that they mentioned is extrapyramidal side effects. And that means um, there's a couple different symptoms you can get. One is it's called tardive dyskinesia. And that's where the person is like thrusting their tongue. Um, they don't have control over movements. A lot of these symptoms, you know, it's extrapyramidal side effects, also called EPS. And these are incredibly embarrassing to the person and are often associated with a really low risk or low um, adherence to taking the medication. So it's important to minimize those types of side effects. It makes it also easier because up until now, when a client is on an antipsychotic medication, doctors where I've worked also have to prescribe a separate medication to combat the extrapyramidal side effects, usually a drug like cogentin or something like that. So in case you're really interested in the nitty gritty, um, this medication, which doesn't even have a name yet, its number is SEP363856, in case you care. It's thought to activate the trace amine-associated receptor and serotonin 1A receptor, but it doesn't bind to dopamine or serotonin receptors, which are thought to mediate the effects of the currently available antipsychotics, which is important. Um, and what they did is they basically ran quite a few people through a double-blind study and found really very fast improvement using a couple different scales. And the cool thing about this is that this type of drug may have an effect beyond the basic D2 receptor antagonists and could even help with cognitive impairment, depression, substance use and other things like that, not just psychosis, though it does seem to be a new therapeutic option for psychosis. And definitely the negative effects without the effects associated with what we have now, which is the direct D2 receptor antagonism. I hope some of that made sense to you. The big news here, big picture is there is headway being made all the time on new types of medications for schizophrenia. And it's something that I like to keep my eye out for uh, just to see what's happening with that. So it's exciting. It's cool that they're really putting a lot of money into completely new types of meds because, you know, we had the first generation drugs for this, um, like Thorazine, Haldol. 
and then we had second generation antipsychotics, and then there's some newer ones. Eventually, we got into injectable antipsychotics. Um, but it's been sort of slow up until, I'd say, the last 15, 20 years. You know, um, and for a long time, there was mainly controlling side effects. So they wanted to minimize the side effects of Thorazine, so they came out with other drugs. Um, Clozeril is a newer medication. Well, not really newer, but it's, I think, a second generation. And that's, you know, a very popular medication. Uh, but it's really good to see that they're coming out with even newer types of medications. And more importantly, looking at how they work and that may give us a better sense of what is, in fact, causing the symptoms. Because with schizophrenia, there's actually quite a few hypotheses, but there isn't the knowledge that we have for, say, depression, anxiety, and those disorders on a neurotransmitter level. So it's good to have kind of some newer information like this. So I'll let you digest that. We'll be back after the break with some more information about the opiate use disorders and what's going on with that. Stay tuned. Hey, folks. Welcome back. Good to have you here at Pocket Counselor Radio. Uh, this is your host, Mike Robb. Remember, you can always tweet the show at Mike Robb, L-M-H-C. That's Rob with two Bs. You can also email me directly at microbcounselor at gmail.com. So in this segment, I want to talk to you a little bit about the opiate, opiate epidemic. So as most people are aware, we have a huge issue with opiate use disorders here in the United States, and this has been going on for a couple of years now at a pretty severely high kind of level. So one of the things that's really become available is better treatment options. And, you know, it's no longer methadone alone. Um, there's a wide variety of options. There's a lot of really good stuff out there for us to help treat the clients so one of these medications that we use most frequently is uh, called buprenorphine and it's in fact considered the gold standard of treatment uh, I would say it's what most people would be on if they came to a place uh, presenting for use with um, an opiate use disorder. So out of buprenorphine, there's actually several products available. So there's uh, Bunavale. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I've only ever seen it written. It's buprenorphine and naloxone. And there's also Suboxone, which is buprenorphine and naloxone as a film. That's extremely common. Uh, I would say that 
probably most people are getting some form of Suboxone at some point. Um, and in case you're not aware, naloxone is Narcan. So intriguingly, they combine the buprenorphine and the naloxone in one. So it prevents the person uh, from potentially abusing it to the point of overdose. That's the theory. So there's also Zubsolve, which is buprenorphine and naloxone again, but sublingual tablets. And there's also some transmucosal products as well with buprenorphine in it. And uh, buprenorphine is under the wider category of MAT uh, medications or uh, medication-assisted treatment. So here's the thing. Here's why I brought this up. Well, I guess first, maybe I should tell you a little bit. Uh, one thing about buprenorphine is you can't just walk into any clinic and get it. You have to go to a uh, certified opioid treatment program or an OTP. And it's a lot more convenient, at least from what I've heard, than the traditional methadone maintenance programs. And buprenorphine has a lot of benefits in terms of it lowers the potential for people abusing it. It, With the Narcan in it, it increases safety for overdose, stuff like that. And it also can help diminish effects of uh, dependency and stuff like that. So uh, it's good stuff. It's really excellent. It helps a ton of people. And it's pretty widely used. There's a lot of OTPs in the country. I don't have an exact number, but they're pretty much in any community or county. With that said, I found an, a fascinating article on Medscape. Because, you know, in my spare time, I like to read medical research. Um, this is written by, and I'm going to completely mess up the woman's name, and I'm sorry about that. It's Batia Swift Yasger. Um, hopefully that's the right name, or right pronunciation of the name. Um, and this author has said, PCPs don't back the gold standard treatment for opioid addiction. PCP being primary care physician. So despite conclusive evidence showing that um, medications such as buprenorphine are the gold standard treatment for what we just talked about, opioid use disorders, a significant portion of primary care physicians aren't buying in. Results from a nationally representative survey show. How many are you wondering? Well... Investigators found that one-third of U.S. primary care physicians do not believe medications used to treat OUD, opiate use disorders, are more effective than non-pharmacologic treatment or that they are safe for long-term use. 
So this is a touchy subject, right? I think it combines a lot of the stigma we see here. So they don't actually have any explanation for why a third of the PCPs don't believe this. But I think it goes back to the roots of addiction, right? A lot of people, especially if you look into the history of psychology, it's going back to um, addiction was seen as a moral failing Uh, up until probably, I'm guessing here, maybe the 70s. Uh, So, I mean, you look back, maybe even actually later, 80s or 90s, but... um, So, um, you have a lot of people who still believe that stigma, that it's a moral failing, not a medical illness, not a biological illness. That could be part of it, where a primary care physician, especially if uh, perhaps they're older, something like that, they don't have the up-to-date research and attitudes about addiction, They might believe it to be more of a moral failing rather than a medical illness. Um, Another aspect I would think would be um, just the side effects and danger that people, just because they are on buprenorphine, it doesn't mean that they won't ever use their drug of choice, their substance of choice again, right? So... Perhaps these physicians are concerned that if they take on this person, that the person is going to overdose. Um, And that may be something that makes them shy away from this. Also, I think there's uh, generally, and I've not done any scientific research on this, but I think that there's generally a lot of... um, not apathy maybe, but maybe apathy towards addiction medicine. Uh, There's a lot of stereotypes and again, stigma. And especially when I think it gets into co-occurring disorders where there's uh, a mental illness as well as a chemical dependence involved that becomes complicated to manage the medications and probably that has an influence on uh, the doctors and their interest in prescribing something like buprenorphine. But I'd be interested to hear your feedback, especially if you're a primary primary care physician, because I think that there's, there's a great deal of dialogue that could be happening here because I think at the end of the day, the goal is to keep everybody safe and healthy and recovery oriented. So I think that it's crucial. And I hope that they do a follow-up study as to why one third of PCPs were against buprenorphine. Um, I'd like to know more about why this is the case. And I'm gonna look into that more But let me know what your thoughts are. Contact the show at MikeRobLMHC on Twitter and let us know. 
So up next, we have in our final segment today, when loved ones handle the COVID-19 pandemic in different ways. Hey folks, welcome back to Pocket Counselor. This is Mike Robb, your host. So in our final segment today, I want to talk to you a little bit about a fascinating article I found that prompted me to think a little bit about how to handle it when loved ones are handling the COVID pandemic uncertainty in different ways. So think about who you live with, who's in your family, who you love, who you work with, your friends. How are they handling the pandemic? Are they talking a lot about it? Are they not talking at all about it? What's going on there? Probably depends a lot on where you live. You know, if your community is hit pretty hard with the COVID pandemic, I'm sure it's on the forefront of everybody's mind, right? If you're in one of the parts of the country that has fortunately been spared the brunt of it, um, probably people in your family don't talk about that much. So you think about uncertainty and that's the primary driver of anxiety. So you think about it, all of us are right now experiencing things that nobody who is living has ever experienced before. Think about that. What we're going through right now is something no one who is currently alive has gone through. So when you think about this uncertainty, the initial reaction is try to reduce it, right? Uh, you might want to look for information about the pandemic. I know a lot of people who do that. They're glued to the TV, they're researching, they're looking up uh, different things about the pandemic. And the theory here would be that, you know, that's going to help them reduce that uncertainty. So I think on the flip side, a lot of people reduce the uncertainty by kind of ignoring it. Oh, I'll be fine. The pandemic won't come here. Um, you know, we'll just think about other things and go about daily life. But Neither of those, if you only do the one type or the other, are effective, right? You have to kind of blend them. And so I saw this fascinating article on psychology today, and it's talks. it talks a lot about the people you live with. So it says, you know, especially relating to the types of uncertainty and how people reduce it, if you're on different ends of that spectrum, it can be very difficult, right? So if your spouse is someone who wants to seek all the information, is glued to the TV, and, 
you know, is watching every press briefing offered and you're the opposite. You know, you're trying to go about daily life and ignore it. It's going to be very problematic then when one person is bringing the pandemic up constantly and the other person isn't. And the one person might get very frustrated or offended by it, right? Uh, in fact, <laughs> both could be because both of you are looking at it from a different perspective. Think about, it. do you know anyone who does this? Um, you know, you either have reducing the uncertainty by ignoring it or reducing uncertainty by learning more about it. And I, I think there is a good point to be made, which is there is such a thing as too much information, right? And I think that we also have to be conscious consumers of media and realize that more time in front of it doesn't necessarily mean more information. So as I mentioned before, with the 24 hour news cycle, you can watch the news for 24 hours, but that doesn't mean you're going to get any more than the 15 minutes of information you had previously. And then I think that that's where anxiety can build. But back to our topic at hand. So if you and your spouse or people you live with are working on reducing that uncertainty with the pandemic in different ways, it can create stress. So think about it and think about how you can talk to who you live with about this. So there's a fantastic theory, which they bring up in the article, and I had not thought of. It's the theory of motivated information management. It's by Fifi and Wiener, 2004. And there's also the problematic integration theory, which is older. I do remember that one. Uh, that's from 1992. So you think about what they talk about with the uncertainty and how people handle it. I think at the end of the day, it's important to realize that you and the people you live with are all handling it the best that they can, the best that they know how. And I'm guessing when you really get down to it and think about it, you've seen your spouse, loved ones, whoever you live with, handle uncertainty in this way before. You know, if there was ever a time of crisis or stress in your life, you probably handled it the same way you're handling the pandemic and the uncertainty that follows with that, where one of you probably tries to seek information, get more news and knowledge about the subject, and that helps you or they with their uncertainty. And the other person probably tries to ignore it. And that's okay. There's different approaches. That's perfectly fine. But it's important to also talk about it and maybe accept and have a conversation about how each of you processes this. 
and then maybe set guidelines or, you know, kind of talk about, okay, well, if one person is completely ignoring the situation, the other person who just gained some more knowledge about it, for example, you don't need to do shots of Lysol that will not kill coronavirus. Uh, if they want to talk about that for an hour, that may be too much for the other person, but finding a healthy boundary, finding a healthy way so both of you feel heard and coming to a good uh, situation with that so that no one feels uh, unheard, invalidated, things like that. So it's important to communicate, important to realize everybody has different needs with this uncertainty, but also most importantly, give yourself some credit. You're going through something no one living has gone through before. And that's important to remember. So think about that. And as always, stay tuned. We'll have more episodes coming soon with Pocket Counselor. And just to break the news to you, in the next coming weeks, next few weeks, we're going to have interviews. We're going to start doing a uh, interview series. I've got a great lineup of people from across the country. I'm very excited about it. And we'll be talking to you more about that uh, probably in the next episode. So stay tuned. Remember, you can always tweet the show at Mike Rob LMHC. And email me directly at mikerobcounselor at gmail.com. Again, that's Rob with two Bs. And as always, you can find Pocket Counselor wherever you get your great podcasts. And you can also, if you feel like your story is one that we should hear, I'd love to hear from you. Definitely send me an email, reach out, and we can talk more about that. Until next time, stay safe, and we will see you in the next episode.